Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. My guest today is Warner Earhart, founder of the popular personal development program, EST, or Earhart Seminar Training in 1971. Today, we're going to speak about the origin of Est and his time before that, what he was doing, as well as what he is doing today. And in between the colorful story of Warner, Est, and its development into Landmark Forum, one of the most popular personal development programs in the world. So stay tuned and I hope you enjoy. Warner, how are you today? I know you're in London. Yes, and very, very well. And you know, it's starting to, the sun's starting to go down and uh, the sky's always great here in London at sundown. So I'm happy and things are good. Wonderful. I was just trying to think, uh, looking over what little I know of your life, but reading some of the work that's been published. Speaking being. Yes. Speaking, speaking being. being. I, yeah. I always say the same thing too. <laughs> it's hard for me to keep the other word in my mind. But no, uh, but also sort of your own journey, which I know you have probably reflected on over the years and certainly uh, probably more recently. But when you left your wife and children in Philadelphia to go west, and I know you left with Ellen, did you have any idea what you were looking for? And I know you were extraordinarily well-read, and I guess we could use the term autodidact uh, to describe your self-education, if you will, but what was driving you? Was it unhappiness about uh, your situation, or was it a feeling that there was something you needed to learn but had not yet learned? I really don't know. You know, it uh, things unfolded the way they unfolded, and I had no plot or plan about it. The woman I was married to was and is a saint, spectacular human being, and uh, I certainly had no uh, complaint about her. And uh, the Rilke poem about somebody left for a faraway church rather than residing in the crockery at home. So that's kind of what happened to me. Now, you know, I would not have said that uh, because I wouldn't be clever enough to say it, but Rilke said it really well in that poem, which I'm probably doing some damage to, but the sense that he conveyed in the poem was really, I would say, pretty much what it's not a bad explanation of what was going on for me. So it was kind of like that, Jim. Well, you know, you certainly took uh, an extraordinary trek over actually a number of years to finally get to the West Coast. And I know initially you were focused not only on your prior interest in literature and philosophy, but uh, more on these individuals who uh, had written books about actually selling, if you will, and of course, uh, you were an extraordinary salesman and still are. But was that really the driver? I know you prided yourself on the work you did to increase uh, an individual's sales performance. 
but it was much more than that, wouldn't you say? Yes, and and you know the the what motivated me was uh, to discover something that actually made a difference in who one is. That is to say, for a long time it was about performance, and then it morphed from performance into uh, who am I really? What is it to be really? And uh, just the sense that there was something well beyond what was that time available to me. And that was, kind of, that was what moved me. That's what drove me. That's what motivated me, so to speak. So would you say it was both an internal query of what drove you or that plus a really a sincere desire to help people in their own journey? Well, at the beginning, it was to help people perform, me and others. And then as I began to, you know, I had certain things that really made a difference for me. One of them was a book by a, I believe he was a psychiatrist. He may have been a psychologist by the name of William Glasser and you'll recognize this as soon as I say what he, with the title of his book, was Reality Therapy. And that had a really profound impact on me because I was good at excuses and justifications and rationalizations and explanations and so forth. And uh, in Glasser, I really distinguished between all of that and the reality given by the world, to use a Heideggerian term, uh, the environment, as we would normally call it. Uh, but it's really the world in which one is. And that had a profound impact on me personally. It had a profound impact on the contributions I was able to make to others and moved me from performance to being in a certain sense. I don't want to say that too profoundly, like it's something really profound because it was just a beginning. And the thing that then solidified what was happening was my entrance into Zen. And, you know, I lived in Sausalito at the time, and the uh, great exponent Zen lived on a beached ferry boat, one side of which was an artist by the name of Jean Varda, as I recall. And on this side was the former Episcopalian minister and now, and I'm sorry, his name doesn't come to me right away. Alan Watts. Yes, Alan Watts. And at any rate, I spent a lot of time on that. I, I read Alan, and that's how I got introduced to him, is by buying and reading his books. But then I got to spend a lot of time with him on the ferry. That had a pretty profound impact. And then I got to spend time with various Zen masters and a really extraordinary woman about exploring what it was to be like a body by the name of Charlotte Selver. At any rate, that had a big 
profound impact. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the surprising ones, and that was Richard Pryor. Wow. And I just really loved Richard's comedy. But more importantly than the comedy for me was this was a guy who was trying to say it like it really is. You know, the little conversation we had before we uh, went on air. Uh, no, 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 no. Richard was not uh, trying to be cute or nice or anything. He was just trying to be what I call straight. Say it like it is rather than glossing it or gilding it or whatever one does. And it was not social grease. In other words, it wasn't what lets me slip by another human being. It was the really where it's at that I learned from Richard and subsequently got to know him and spend some time with him as well. Prior to S, they were the three main sources of my development. And I learned something from every discipline I studied, and I studied every discipline there was, from Lottie Hahn to uh, Dianetics. And, uh, you know, I read in all of them, and where I could, I listened to the people who actually created it, the person who created it. So that was the background before Est. That was what the my own experience that I called a transformation, and it definitely was. I came out the other side able to own who I was and come to be able to be who I was at 33. And uh, none of it was comfortable and none of it was nice. And as you said, uh, you know, I had deserted my wife and four children. And uh, I'd have to deal with that honestly and straightforwardly. And by the way, I never apologized. Now, why not, Werner? Because I didn't want any ameliorating uh, fact. I wanted to confront it like it was. Werner, you deserted your wife and four children. And just that is what I had to go back and deal with with my wife and four children. Well, you know, in some ways, uh, when you were talking about Richard Pryor, I was thinking of the um, comedian from the, uh, I guess, the 50s and 60s who was arrested for obscenity multiple times. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, but he told it like it was. And uh, and obviously, in that case, got into a, a lot of legal issues. Oh, yes, I know exactly who you mean. And I had read and studied his uh, videos. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, it also reminded me of George Carlin, who in some ways oh, yes. sort of put it out there. But a lot of today's comedians really drew on the gentleman whose name you and I can't remember at the moment, plus Richard, who really went the rest of the way beyond. I will get that name before we're done here. If I do, I'll tell you what I remember. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm sort of thinking the same thing. Uh, maybe it, it should come to us. At my age, I still always know what I'm talking about. I certainly can't remember the name. That part of my brain is probably where the lesions are. <laughs> uh, exactly. Oh, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce. 
Yes, Lenny. Oh, you very good, James. Well, it, it, no, it, it was because as you were as you were talking and filling the space, I was looking. <laughs> okay, great. I, I I just had to put in uh, obscene committee <laughs> comedian. Uh, uh, right. Very good. So, uh, uh, no, well, that's that's you, you know this interest this concept of being, and and we'll talk about. Uh, Speaking being uh, this uh, book that recently highlighted a lecture you gave uh, with uh, some authors who are interested in ontology, but we'll get to that. But how would you say this concept of being relates to your shadow self? If you're talking about uh, who I had generated as myself up till the time I was 33, I mean, it's very simple for me. I had to own every bit of it. I am the person, that kind of a person. And to the degree that I, and this is really tough stuff, but to the degree that I can be that person without justification, without explanation, without reason, uh, without uh, it belonging to anybody but me, to that degree, I can be complete with it and live beyond it. The minute I resist it, the minute I start to explain it and what happened and blah, 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 blah. No, you know, it leaves me free to be and free to act rather than having to do something about it. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, it seems as though how we function in the world isn't being for most of us. It's driven by the baggage that we carry from our childhood or other experiences, which in some way has formed us, but is working uh, underneath our conscious level as the driver of our behavior. I, I, I have nothing to add or subtract to what you said. I mean, it's just a fact that we get into this groove over time. Uh, now, some people have a very successful groove and God bless them. And others of us have a uh, either less than successful or even a disastrous groove. But it kind of uh, is, that's not who anybody is really. I mean, not really who they are. And, you know, the work that uh, I've been able to develop allows people to complete that aspect of themselves by owning it. Then what's possible beyond that groove? Not that I'm going to change all the circumstances in my life. No, when I woke up or when I experienced the transformation, my circumstances were exactly the same. But my relation to them was nothing like what it had been. The things that were, that I thought were important, money and uh, uh, reputation and, uh, no, no, none of that was really what life was about. None of it was very satisfying ultimately. Gratifying, yes. Satisfying, no. Fulfilling, no, but gratifying, yes. You know, and we all, I think, get stuck in certain grooves. And uh, 
it's very difficult to get out of the groove I'm stuck in when I'm stuck in it. But if I can be, and I'm now using B with a capital B, when I, B-E, when I can be that groove and own it raw and naked and have no story in addition to it, uh, I suddenly am, that frees me from the groove. It frees me to be and frees me to act in ways in which I simply was not acting, frees me from ways that I acted. But that sounds like the actions were volitional, and I don't think they are. I think I got stuck with the actions. I hate that as an explanation, but to kind of put it into the perspective of it lacks being and it lacks real action, like as a matter of choice. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, you know, the nature of our lives in some ways is, you know, you're fill, you're filling a backpack with stuff and there are very few people who can keep the backpack empty and simply being, if you want to call it this pure self. You know, you talk about, I think, this peak experience. Now, would you say that is a particular insight? Is it transformative? Does it change how you see the world or does it change how you respond to the world? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the my experience of transformation was really very simple. First off, I realized I knew nothing. Now, how could a guy who spent a lot of his life learning and studying and reading and taking programs and blah, 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 wind up in the presence of his own total ignorance? Everything I knew, I knew in order to something in order to get smarter, in order to be more uh, shrewd, in order to uh, be more successful, in order to be able to work more effectively with people, etc., etc. I didn't know anything for itself. And uh, that from then on stood me in good stead. You know, I found, found out as I read Plato that Plato thought he was the smartest man in the room because he was only the only guy who knew he knew nothing. And that realization really has stood me in really good stead because I don't look for access to knowing. I look for access to being, or to make that more understandable, I look for access to the discovery of rather than to learn it. And what I've discovered has had an enormous impact on me as contrasted with what I know. I knew better than a lot of the things I did stupidly and, and uh, harmfully, either to myself or even worse to others. So at any rate, that was a part of it. The other part of it is that I realized that nothing needed to be driving me. I could be free to be and free to act out of what? Out of nothing. Now, I actually mean that literally. 
that until I got to nothing, I was not free to be and free to act. And, you know, as Heidegger says, and his way of putting it, until you can deal with emptiness, as the Zen master would say, you have no freedom to be and no freedom to act. You know, it's really tough stuff for people to listen to, Jim, when, you know, I'm trying to share it like my experience of it. But there's a way, I believe, of sharing it. And so far, as I'm told by uh, my colleagues at Landmark, this started 50 years ago, and it's still around and still vibrant and alive and successful in Landmark. And, uh, you know, something like three and a half million people have participated in those programs and, you know, done so with no uh, advertising. Uh, simply, you know, something remarkable happens to me. The first person I want to tell about it is the people I love, the people I care about, and the people who are a pain in my neck. You know, both sides of it. <laughs> At any rate, one of the things that I think makes this possible is when people can confront that there are two different realities. So the reality that I was brought up in was, put it in fancy words, an epistemological reality, but I'm going to talk about it in words that I can speak about, and that is the world of knowing. If I believe this, no, that's not so good. Uh, if somebody else believes something different, that's definitely not so good. Uh, but my opinion and my beliefs and my views about thing, no. We live in an era of scientific reality. And what science is about is about reality as knowing. Not as reality as experience. I have no way of experiencing subatomic particles. But I can know about them, and you know, I'm a little bit of a physics nut, so I do study such things. And I, you know, uh, while I'm certainly no physicist, I can know about such things. And I can uh, know a lot of things. And that's essentially the today's environment is one of reality is the reality that science provides for us. And uh, uh, now there's another reality. And the other reality is the reality of my experience, the reality that is constituted in consciousness or the reality constituted in being. I was reading about uh, uh, Roger Penrose and he has this really great thing, you know, the physicist of uh, some note. And I'm just going to read to you something he says. So he, he's explaining reality. And he says, you know, there's this kind and that kind and the other kind. Now, his three realities are all science realities. But one of them is my own position is to avoid this immediate paradox between the realities by allowing platonic mathematical world its own timeless and locationless existence while allowing it to be accessible to us 
through mental activity. So now just to put it in this, my, here's his summary. My viewpoint allows for three different kinds of reality. My champion. I only got two. He's got three. Actually, I do have three, but uh, uh, my viewpoint allows for three different kinds of reality. And this is a, you know, a solid scientist speaking and uh, part of the uh, important part of the physics community. The physical, that's one reality. You know, the stuff I can get my hands on and that I can put through a system of of uh, uh, breaking it down so I can see particles and so on and so forth. Uh, so the physical, the mental, and the mathematical. As you and I know, a good deal of uh, uh, quantum mechanics exists only mathematically and otherwise doesn't make a lot of sense as one of the great Physicists said, shut up and calculate. Stop trying to figure it out. Just do the calculations. They'll, they'll predict what you're going to find in the experiment. And so, as you and I know, it does. And uh, it does it brilliantly. At any rate, Roger has three realities that made it okay for me to have at least two. And I, I'll sneak another one in later. But the two realities is the reality of what is known. The other reality is the reality, well, let me use the fancy word. So what is known is an epistemological objective reality. And that's a reality that we're all brought up in and all educated in and all enculturated in. And then there's the reality of, uh, and I'll try to illustrate it, the reality of the pain in my foot. And as you would tell me, no, Werner, there's no pain in your foot. The pain is in your brain. So in the epistemological reality, that's true. You know, you amputate my leg and I may have a pain in my foot still in the phantom limb. There isn't any foot to have a pain in, but there it is. No, the pain's in my brain as you and, and any scientist would say, and I would say in the epistemological reality that, no, there's no pain in my foot. Now, in the ontological reality, the reality of being or existence, there's by God a pain in my foot. Now, I say that when you learn to live in that reality, <laughs> along with the epistemological reality, you start to have a prowess for living and a quality of life that you can't get if you're stuck in the reality of knowing. So that's my whole story in a little nutshell at the bottom. Obviously, you've studied consciousness, which continues, of course, to be challenging. You have Penrose, then you have Christopher Koch, and then you have Chalmers, an ever-increasing number. To be frank with you, I'm not sure if I understand any of them completely. What do you think, though, to do what you're talking about or to, if you will, go through the exercise of, I guess, becoming B or B, uh, why is it do you think that it is so hard for others to get there? Or 
what are the major things that stop someone? Is it being lost in what they feel is reality or this materialistic world? Is it a lack of awareness of something beyond? And as a follow-up, do you believe it's possible for anyone to get to simply being? You know, I've probably been in being with probably something close to tens of thousands of people and on a fairly intimate basis, talking about the quality of their life, talking about the situations in their life. And I can tell you that my personal experience is that people do experience transformation into the world of being. And, you know, that's what that book, Speaking Being, is about. As the two professors who wrote the book said, reflecting Heidegger, you cannot say being. I can say knowing. And I can make it so rock solid that one goes away feeling very comfortable. By God, I know that. Uh, Being is not like that. You don't get that rock-solid explanation, description, no, because you can't speak being. What one does to evoke being is to speak in a way that is, so to speak, you're pointing at being, and then you point at it from another direction, and then you point at it from another direction, and there is a way to evoke being so that people actually discover it for themselves. And that's what I call transformation. And it leaves you, I don't know how else to say this, free to be and free to act. Instead of being burdened by the reality in which I live, I'm now free to be in that reality. Instead of being forced to this or that, No, I'm free to act. And I see possibilities for action that I couldn't see when I had to act, when I was forced to act, when I knew what to do. Yeah. So I stand in front of a difficult situation without knowing or even trying to figure out what to do until I'm able to be in that situation in a way that it speaks to me and gives me action. The situation itself gives me action. And uh, that's the experience people have when they experience a transformation. They have a different, they have the same circumstances, same wife, children, job, money, whatever situation, uh, social situations. But my relation to those situations is one of the freedom to be and the freedom to act. And it just, It enables me in a way that makes it easy to deal with the situations. You know, I tell people I'm handicapped. I don't have a third arm. Boy, if I had a third arm, the things I could do. But without a third arm, with no third arm, I got to make life work. Okay, with sickness, okay, yeah. I I was sick for quite a long time, never mind the whole story, but it had to do with a medication that I was taking, and then I had to come off of very slowly, and 
left me really incapacitated. But I had to make life work anyhow. But it's not like, well, now life can't work because I'm not well. No, I'm not well, and I will make life work without a third arm, and I will make it work not being as well as I used to be. And, you know, fortunately for me, I'm now coming out of it and have been coming out of it for the last three months. And now I'm starting to have some vitality that I didn't have. I'm now, you know, it ate all my muscles and most of my fat is the uh, doctor said, yeah, it ate all the fat except the ones around your middle corner. <laughs> yes. Well, m mine still remains. Not much was eaten yet. So in some ways, actually, you're talking a little bit about what we had talked about before we started recording, which was this idea of acceptance and also uh, the nature of attachment, which, of course, are Buddhist types of principles. Yes. Uh, yeah. The illness that I had was exactly the same no matter what my relationship to it was. But my relation determined my freedom to be beyond the illness. My relation to the illness allowed me a freedom to act beyond the illness. And it's, you know, it's hard for a person who's ill to get that that's possible. I mean, it is actually possible. The Ill, you know, it took months and months and months uh, for me to, you know, I, they put me in the hospital, gave me this brutal high dose of steroids, which worked for maybe a month, two months. And then it started to leave me weaker and weaker and less and less cognitive and so on and so forth. And then they said, well, you got to take it. You got to come down slowly. So it took months and months and months to uh, get to zero, and then it took more months to get it out of my system. And now it's pretty much out of my system, and, you know, I'm exercising and back to creating, and, uh, you know, it's just life is great. But it was great while I was sick. Exactly. I, I think that's the point that prevents other people or a lot of people, and perhaps sometimes even still myself, of sort of moving uh, forward. Now, uh, we're talking about essentially the human potential movement and, and how you have created uh, this program over, as you were saying, that now 50 years, and how you've sort of relentlessly looked or evaluated a number of other programs. What do you think separates Landmark Forum, as it's called today, from other, uh, if you will, human potential movements? And I don't want to name any or get into that, but you know, there's some which, frankly, are all about the cell and they keep selling you up, up and up. And a lot of people, I guess, swear by them. But that being said, there are also a number that fail. What, is there a secret sauce to this that's common to all of these? You know, I think it's which road you want to go down. There are people who would like to go down the getting better. And God bless them. If that's the choice one makes, then do what you can to get better. I want to read 
a, a paragraph out of Speaking Being that, by the way, the authors wrote, the two professors who wrote uh, Speaking Being, not my words. Uh, Hyde and Cobb, right? Yes, Bruce Hyde, who has passed away since, and uh, Drew Cobb. And, you know, I was privileged to interact with both of them and still do interact with Drew. And they're both extraordinary human beings. And, you know, they got interested in the work, as I call it, because they participated in both of them in the training. I think both of them in the training, definitely uh, Bruce did, uh, and then later in the forum. And I believe that Drew also, but I could be wrong about Drew. He may have only gotten into the work when the training had been retired and the forum had taken place. Anyway, I'm gonna read a quote from their introduction to the book. Given this timing for the emergence of S training, namely 1971, media at the time characterized it as part of the human potential movement. But scholar Jonathan Moreno has more recently called S, quote, the most important cultural event after the human potential movement itself seemed exhausted. Yeah, I have always said, no, this is not part of the human potential movement. It has nothing to do with realizing your potential. It has to do with uh, something beyond that, something incomparable to that. Not that I'm against human potential. No, that's great. And anybody who chooses that path, God bless them. And I'm rooting that they get the maximum benefit. You know, I studied Carl Rogers, and uh, who was the guy who said, uh, if all you got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like a nail. <laughs> I know. Yes, yes. I can't remember his name at the moment. But, you know, and they were great guys, and I learned a lot as I did every discipline I ever studied or participated in. I got benefit from it. Yeah, it was he who talked about peak experiences, Again, I still can't remember his name, but uh, the people will know who I'm talking about. At any rate, he was a brilliant psychologist. Those guys did a great job, and I learned a lot. And it got me, you know, I always say, it got me up that ladder, almost to the top of the wall, but, it did, but I didn't, never got over the wall. But lots of people have gotten enormous value out of the human potential movement and the proponents of it and the practitioners of it. As I say, that's another path. And just as Moreno said, the training, the S training, and now the forum or landmark forum just simply isn't part of the human potential movement, nor is it psychology. It is ontology. Well, what's ontology? The study of being or if you like, the study of existence. Not the study about existence, that's called knowing. Not the study about consciousness, that's called knowing. It's about consciousness itself or being itself, if you like. Jim, I'm gonna say a little bit more because these guys really did, the two professors really did a brilliant job of 
first off, the book is, as you know, a word-for-word -word writing out of a forum that was done, I've forgotten, in the 80s sometime. At any rate, I'll just read a little bit more. Infamous for its rigorous ground rules and confrontational methods, elements Earhart says were necessary in the liberated, let it all hang out, new age ethos of the time. The S training, Latin for it is, and an acronym for Earhart Seminars training, grew in popularity throughout the 70s because of the benefits uh, participants reported having received. And blah, 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 they talk about the benefits. At any rate, several studies of the S training attempted to measure its effects using psychological model. While he considered such efforts valuable, that's me, I guess, Earhart has asserted that this approach is inappropriate for analysis of his work. His work, he says, is not psychological, but ontological. His concern is the being of human beings. Uh, he also consistently emphasized that the focus of his work is the development of language in which it is articulated. What est is, is the, an exercise in language in which being makes itself present. And people, uh, most of the people who participated in the training and most of the people who participate in the uh, forum uh, find themselves stepping into that world. And here's the problem. I've read enough physics so that I know the language of physics. Uh, I have no idea about the language of neurosurgery, which you are an expert in. But if you talk to me about the language of neurosurgery, you're going to lose me. And yet, if I'm going to deal with neurosurgery, you're going to have to talk to me in a language designed to make neurosurgery available to me. And that's the language used in the forum as it was in the S training. Now, you know, I've had dinner with you uh, and your family enough times to know that you don't talk in those terms at dinner. And I don't talk in the terms of the forum at dinner either. You know, that's called jargon if you do it at dinner. Uh, and, but it takes a specialized language. And that's what my work's been about, is developing a language that actually evokes being in a conversation with others. So now I'm going to shut up again, Jim. <laughs> uh, and I have enjoyed all of our dinners uh, and probably the martinis associated with our dinner. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so obviously we're talking about speaking being. Uh, were you a fan of Heidegger? for a period of time, or? I knew nothing about Heidegger at all until around 80, 1980. So from 1971 to 1980, there was no impact from Heidegger on, at that time, the training. Now, I had the great fortune 
of having a uh, relationship with the Heidegger scholar, Bert Dreyfus, who, by the way, has passed away now. And uh, Bert and uh, a gentleman who had been the finance minister in Chile and escaped from Allende, from not, uh, and escaped Pinochet? From Pinochet, yeah, who had worked for Allende, Allende. He was also studying Heidegger with Bert. Uh, you know, and I got really, really a lot out of it. And I found some of Heidegger's language more effective at evoking being than my own language. And I adopted some of it, and there... Uh, aspects of it in the forum. But as the two professors said, EST, the training, was what the forum is, but the forum is adapted to today's uh, culture and evolved over years since 1980, I'm going to say 86, 87, 88, when we first introduced it. And uh, it's in its current form now offered uh, by Landmark uh, since 1991. Uh, so it's 30 years for them and 50 years for the whole shebang. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's fascinating, though, because not only is Landmark Forum, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, simply a program for individuals, but it's actually expanded to involve, uh, uh, I guess it's a cor a corporate training and other ways to influence business? Yes, there's a whole group of management consulting firms, not great big ones, medium-sized some, and smaller others. I'm going to guess around 70, maybe it's 65 uh, firms who use the material that I developed for use of what's in the forum in business. And uh, it's pretty effective. I, I'll just give you one example. So if you read the literature, it says uh, two or three years to develop trust. Corporations from big names, Fortune 50, and the big names in uh, IT, Apple, etc., and some heavy-duty uh, government agencies uh, utilize these management consultants to restructure their culture so that trust becomes more readily available quicker, like in a matter of months rather than a matter of years. And uh, that's just one aspect of the work that they do. But they're really experts at developing a culture that evokes performance and employee satisfaction at the same time. As you and I both know, when people are doing well, they're often pleased to be working uh, when they're making a difference. Well, I think that's an interesting point. That's this idea, I think, of... of making a difference. I always say that when you have employees that are kind, compassionate, have a perspective of not just being a job, 
but a passion for, you can't pay them enough for the work that they do for you. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, it's an important part of the quality of life that you either make of the work you're doing something that makes a difference or transition to something where you, for the 33 years, it was about making money. And then it became about making a difference. Making a difference in what? In the quality of people's lives, breakthroughs in their performance so that they won at what they were doing instead of having to go through the motions and doing the best they could and blah, 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 blah. And I think that's available for everybody. I have a housekeeper that's been uh, with me for, I'm going to guess, 20 years. And she's extraordinary. And, you know, I tell her, you don't have to go to the gym, sweetheart, because there's evidence that housekeepers already do enough work to have been at the gym so you don't have to go to the gym. But, you know, she and I are really close to each other. Why? Because I'm interested in her family. I'm interested in her well-being. I'm interested in supporting her. I'm interested that she has a sense that she makes possible for me and others to make a difference in people's lives. What she does is not just make the place work, but she makes the place work such that the people who are making a difference in the lives of others are able to do that. So, you know, and she's a really good example of somebody who's found that what she does makes a difference. And it's not positive thinking, damn it. She really does make a difference. You know, who she is in my life enriches my life. And what I do requires enrichment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I always say you can always tell a good doctor because when he walks on the floor, he knows the names of the nurses, he acknowledges them, he compliments them. Uh, he knows the people who change the bedpans. He knows the people who sweep the floors because he knows that he cannot be successful without every one of those people. And I think, unfortunately, this is where so many people have a inflated sense of self-import and that it's all about them and nothing would happen unless they did it. Uh, but my belief is that none of us can do it without the help and support of a myriad of other people uh, that often don't get acknowledged. Yeah, and I try to share with uh, my staff videos of what they've made possible so that they know the chief of staff, you know, I'd have to be doing what she's doing if she wasn't doing it. And I'm enabled to do what I do because she does what she does. So she's got to own the value that we, she and I have created. No, I think that's absolutely right. Let me ask you another question. Uh, you know, I, I was reading, I think, something about you, and I realized that it had actually made me realize some of the own issues that I've had. And it's this idea of a sense of resentment, which then in your mind justifies you to be righteous. And I was just wondering if you would comment on that. I'm not going to use the word I use for myself because uh, we're doing this uh, in a public who didn't 
sign up for any brutal comments by me. Right. You know, I'll, so I'm, I'll clean it up for television. You know, I know I'm a jerk. <laughs> How do I know? Because I can look at my first 33 years and I gave every, 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 every demonstration anybody would need to know that they were a jerk. And I'm going to be a jerk for the rest of my life. Now I'm able to be with being a jerk. So anything I can grant being to grants being to me. So I'm no longer limited to jerkiness. Now allowed to be free from having to be a jerk, from being a jerk by, and this is going to sound strange, by being a jerk. Yeah, I am a jerk. Uh, and I'm going to be a jerk for the rest of my life. Now, shut up and own that. Okay, yeah. Now, as soon as I, when I forget that, I get into trouble. And then, because then I act like a jerk. And I have to get back on the wagon. I have to remind myself, no, Werner, you're a jerk. And you act like a jerk when you aren't able to be a jerk. Well, so let me, actually, let me turn that backwards a little bit and ask you another question then. Um, we're talking about Alan Watts. Oh, yeah. Who, who is a fellow who, I, I mean, obviously is extraordinarily well-known, still followed by a lot of people, his teachings. And I'm a, I, I'm a fan. But if you look at his own life, which, you know, uh, involved a lot of alcohol, what's the other word I'm looking for in a kind way, uh, profligate relationships, perhaps, <laughs> smoking, et cetera. Right. Do you think he simply acknowledged that as part of his being? Or were there drivers there that were at play, which he didn't have the ability to deal with? Well, number one, uh, uh, the only thing I know about addictions like alcohol is that until you hit bottom, the gals and guys who know how to deal with alcoholism won't even touch you. Now, I had the good fortune of being exposed to a uh, really competent therapist who wrote the book on raising the bottom. So how could you get people uh, into a place where they could actually benefit from somebody who knew how to deal with those addictions without them actually having to be lying in the gutter, literally lying in the gutter, and having to be picked up out of the gutter and, okay, now we're ready to start with you. So I don't ever remember Alan ever speaking to me about his alcoholism and no doubt that he was an alcoholic. I mean, you know, I saw the bottles and saw them fall out of his jacket in the airport. But so I don't know how he dealt with it, uh, Jim. But I have the sense that it did not erode his being. It undoubtedly eroded his body, and he may have even died from the alcoholism. And it eroded the quality of his life, I, no doubt. You know, I've been drunk, and I know, you know, you're, you're not very present when you're drunk. But, but you think you're profound. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Remind me of my own stupidities. At any rate, 
I really loved Alan. I thought, uh, I thought he was a really great guy and he made something available to me in my long-term interactions with him that I don't think would have been there without him. You know, I'm very, very close with a Zen master in Japan, Noritake Roshi, who was the successor to, sorry to drop all these names, Yamada Mumon Roshi, with whom I was really close. And Yamada Mumon was probably the greatest Zen master of the last half of the previous century and the beginnings of uh, this one. And, you know, he and I have sake together. I don't think either one of us ever got drunk in front of either one of us. You know, I took him to this really great restaurant along with the nun that supports him, Oito, uh, never mind. And unfortunately, they served him a dish with meat in it, and he ate it. His nun wouldn't eat it, but he ate it. And, you know, as far as I can tell, he was as transformed, enlightened, whatever word you want to use, in the valley of the shadow of death as he was in the monastery with the bells chiming. He was the real thing no matter what. To some degree, I think Alan would fit that to not the degree of Noritake Roshi, but to some degree, I think he would fit that. And I think we all, you know, I make dumb, stupid mistakes and it doesn't ruin my life. Uh, I can still sleep at night because I can own the mistakes. I can be the author of them without any explanation, rationalization. No, Werner, you're a jerk. Well, I think that's one of the great things that a lot of people don't understand because uh, there's an immense amount of guilt and self-criticism. And I think so often uh, people are also terrified of being judged. So it really limits them uh, in how they view the world or what's possible for them. Uh, Actually, I wanted to ask you a couple other questions, and I know we've been talking, which I'm sure you and I could talk for several hours. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say something for your audience. Uh, I met Jim at a mutual friend's house where we were invited to dinner. And all I said to him after he and I had very little conversations together, I think I said, you're a guy I could do business with, not meaning that we would do business, but that we would engage with each other. And then it was years before uh, we actually ever got together again. But uh, since then, for me, it's been spectacular. You know, I love being with you. I love what you have to say. I love your commitment to compassion and have learned a lot from reading what you've written about it and listen to uh, your talks about it. So uh, I just wanted to thank you for the remarkable relationship that you've made possible for me with you and your family for that matter. Well, it's it's truly been a joy to be with you and Hanukkah and spend some time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you appreciate oftentimes uh, people project on you uh, that you're something special 
special, not that you're not something special, but they create a, an aura about someone which limits the interaction. And, and it's unfortunate. And I, I, I would say that I've been extraordinarily blessed because, you know, I've developed uh, relationships with a lot of uh, spiritual, religious, maybe philosophical leaders. And uh, it's always been quite extraordinary. And it's also interested me because so often the interaction is, if you will, disrupted by an expectation or feeling that you're with somebody and you're there or you want to hear something from them that justifies this admiration, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll tell you a very quick story, if you don't mind. I, over a fairly short period of time, probably a month, was in India with the Dalai Lama, sitting next to him talking about something. Then I was in Los Angeles with Eckhart Tolle and some event. And then uh, I was with Amma, the hugging saint. So I did an event at Stanford, and I, afterward, a woman came up to me, and it turned out and, uh, that I recalled her from every one of these events. And she's a socialite who is, if she want to use the term, seeker, right? And she goes to places hoping she's going to get something. So she came to me, and she said, you know, I saw you with the Dalai Lama, and you were sitting there, and it seemed like you have a relationship. I saw you with Eckhart. I saw you with Alma sitting on stage with her. She said, I want you to be my guru. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, is that what you really want? And she said, oh, absolutely. I'll do anything. I said, you're serious. She goes, absolutely. And I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you 100 books, uh, the titles. I want you to spend four hours every day reading them. Then I want you to spend two hours journaling about them. Then I want you to spend two hours meditating about them. And, and then she said, she looks at him, she goes, how can I do that? I'm really busy. And I said, on the, <laughs> on the one hand, <laughs> you're telling me how dedicated you are to self-knowledge, but on the other hand, you won't do what it takes. She goes, well, well, what will happen if I do all of this? I said, well, what you'll realize is actually you don't need me at all. <laughs> Alas, she did not become my student. <laughs> Uh, uh, two other things before uh, we finish, because I'm having such a good time. If you have a couple more minutes, have you ever read of uh, David Hawking's work? I don't think so. Say more. He was a psychiatrist, and uh, he was quite interesting because he actually had a relationship with uh, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was also an alcoholic. But he ultimately wrote a number of very profound books about self-reflection, introspection, self-awareness. So it's David Hawkins. But he, uh, if you read his biography, though it is quite extraordinary how he was able to deal with his own issues and still, in some ways, like Alan Wallace, maintain this uh, very much this depth of presence and self-awareness. The other thing is that I, I'm not sure if you recall, when we were together on stage at Stanford a few years ago, I talked about ruthless compassion. Maybe you can tell us what that means in some ways to you. Well, it's a no-holds-barred relation in which you're dedicated to the other person. But it's a no-holds-barred relation. 
so it's not like, well, you have to say this in nice words or you have to say it in politically correct words or you mustn't use any profanity. It's a no-holds-barred relation. So you're just not confined by any limits in your support of the other person. And that's what I mean by ruthless compassion. You're obviously dedicated to the other person. And you're no holds barred dedicated to the other person. Oftentimes, that does not require any harshness. But when it does, you're ready to be harsh about it. And the harshness is almost always, Jim, nothing more than being real. I have a young woman who problem is she keeps making she keeps making bad errors and she's going to lose the opportunity she has for working with people she can't discipline herself now you know here's my theory i have an opening to something that i hadn't been open to before and i got to train myself to function in that opening And until I am trained, I need to discipline myself so that I don't act like a jerk like I used to. I'm now disciplining myself to take advantage of that opening. She's not able to discipline herself. And, uh, you know, I I just have to be real straight with her. You know, who you are, you know, you're, I'm not going to use her real name, you're Jane you think you're Jane and you think you're referring to something when you say I or me, but what you really need to get is Jane is and I will not discipline myself. That's who Jane is. That's J- Jane exists as I won't discipline myself. Jane exists as I won't discipline myself as Jane's way of being. Now, once you get that, maybe you can get freed of the, I won't discipline myself, so that you can exercise some discipline and give yourself the opportunity to train yourself to do what you need to train yourself to do to continue to have the opportunity you have for making a difference with others. Is that in some way self-sabotage for unknown reasons or within her that you think, or...? Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure that something happened in her childhood that she got, she needed to have no discipline in order to survive. You know, you and I and all of us human beings evolved a brain that was designed up until it became human. You know, we're 97%, you know better than me, 97% of our genes are the same as a, uh, an ape. And my brain works, looks and works a lot like an ape's brain. The difference is I've got language. I can talk to my brain. The other kind of animal is that the effect of their brain. Somehow Jane's brain got 
that to survive, you've got to refuse discipline. And uh, so that's what, that's what's, that's the structure, the mechanism of, I, I don't discipline, but there's a way of being that allows her the freedom to be and the freedom to act in spite of the fact that who I am is I don't discipline myself. Uh, she could also recover the experience in which she set as a survival mechanism, I'm not disciplining myself. So there's you know two ways to go there. One way leaves you uh, less constrained, and the other one leaves you free. You know, I recall a story from Blatley's book, uh, I guess your biographer, a while ago, that Hanukkah was talking about uh, your interaction with... Uh, By the way, his name is William Bartley. Oh, Bartley. Yeah, the third, as I recall. Yes, yes. Anyway, uh, Bill was a great guy, too. Go ahead. Uh, uh, well, what I was just going to say is uh, uh, he was interviewing Gonica, I think, and she was talking about how you work closely with uh, an employee who was a heroin addict and helped her to overcome that by simply hugging her and being with her. Yeah. Uh, and all um, the furniture out of the room and uh, stayed with her for about six hours until she got through the withdrawal. It's in some ways, the whole spectrum of compassion. Obviously, we just talked about ruthless compassion, and the, and this is an example, uh, in some ways, of simply caring and being compassionate and just being there for that person, which I think can be equally as helpful. You never get to the heart of your humanity without caring. You just don't get to the heart of one's humanity without caring, and, uh, you know, uh, without being compassionate, uh, which is a, uh, another word for caring, as far as I can tell, I just don't think you ever get to your humanity. And what keeps us from it is the baggage we carry around, which one isn't limited to. One can do something about. And, you know, part of what people find out of their experience in the forum is a expanded sense of caring and their behavior is consistent with that. No, I think that's true. And I, I think one other point, and then I suppose we should conclude, is in some ways it's, I think, this ability to be present and not keep being reminded of a past that you can't change or the baggage that has occurred as a result. Yes. All right. I can't improve on what you said, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I am going to thank you for the opportunity. You know, I love talking about this stuff with you. Uh, I would do it with no podcast and I'd be happy to do it. But I'm happy to uh, be a part of your podcast and thank you for the opportunity to do so and the privilege to do so. Well, I, I very much appreciate that and it's uh, very kind of you. All right. Bye for now. Take care. Always a pleasure. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>